today's quote was a victim of lab work. Hello, my name is Kate, and this is She Blinded Me With Science. All right. (laughs) In the booth with me today is John Wallingford, a developmental biologist and professor in the Molecular Biosciences Department here at UT. Hello. Howdy. Howdy. Uh, We're going to talk about academic careers and how academia is being affected by the Great Resignation. But before we get into that, I'm going to talk about a piping hot scientific scandal. John, do you keep tabs on the journal Frontiers in Cell and Developmental Biology? Uh, I do. With, do you, with, do you with know what? At least a little bit of skepticism, but yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some deserved skepticism. <laughs> on February 13th, which is exactly a week ago, uh, this journal published a paper entitled Cellular Functions of Spermatogonial Stem Cells in Relation to JAK-STAT Signaling Pathway. You don't need to know what any of that means, because after three days and an enormous amount of criticism of the journal across social media, the paper was retracted. What And what was all of the upset about? The author of the papers used the AI image generator MidJourney to create their figures. And most of the diagrams look standard at first glance until you actually tried to read the figures. Uh, for example, the figure that shows you what the JAK-STAT signaling pathway is, and you realize that every step of the pathway is labeled either JAK or STAT. And the most egregious image is figure one, titled uh, Spermatogonial Stem Cells Isolated, Purified, and Cultured from Rat Testes. And it is a rat, and it is correctly labeled as a rat, And it's just got an enormous, weird growth coming out as what is peripherally labeled testimicals. (laughs) And I will post all of these images at at ScienceKVRX on Instagram for your viewing pleasure. Uh, Did you have any uh, thoughts on this article? I only learned about it today, but what one of my students said is apparently one of the authors on it doesn't actually exist. Uh, can't be found anywhere, you know, joke email. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I've looked at it. It is indeed so egregious that I think it's a prank. <laughs> I think maybe someone tried to see. Maybe we'll find out eventually that someone was trying to see if they could get away with it, if anyone was paying attention. A really expensive uh, prank. Yeah, absolutely. That sound means it's time to calculate cilial force generation. When we come back, we'll talk with John about careers and culture in academia.
welcome back. This is She Blinded Me with Science, and with me in the booth is John Wallingford. Hello, John. Hello, Kate. Good to be here. Good. I'm glad that it's good to be here. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about academia. All right. So I don't think it's controversial to say that you are one of the most outspoken professors in the department when it comes to academic careers. Your catchphrase lately has been that being in academia is the best job in the world. Uh, and in my cohort, as you found out when you surveyed <laughs> us, uh, very few students explicitly want a career in academia. So why do you think you have the best job? And why do you think students are leaning away from academia? I mean, yeah, that's, I think, a big question right now. Why I think it's the best job in the world is, is all the obvious stuff, right? I haven't had a boss since I left the gas station in 1993. Uh, I make my own schedule. Uh, I get to travel. I get to spend all my time doing the things that I'm most passionate about. I get to read papers, and I get to look down microscopes occasionally. And if I wanted to, I could look down microscopes every day, of course. Uh, but for me, it's the freedom. It's the intellectual freedom. It's the 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 idea that I can make a really good living, uh, you know, doing exactly what I want to do and go whichever direction uh, 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 the wind takes me. One of my students actually found that the poop in a tadpole rotates. Uh huh. And and it looks like a little cement mixer. And so we studied that for a while because 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 I can. It's my job. Uh, I read books in the middle of the day. I can go to coffee whenever I want. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of freedom to it and a lot of excitement to it, right? I get to be around smart people. I like to say sometimes that my job literally consists of hand selecting about a dozen incredibly intelligent people to entertain me all day. Um, and yeah, and, and so I, I, I really do love it. Um, <clears throat> I think the the you know why it's become less popular is something uh, of a mystery to me. I, I, I really believe there you, you see a lot, especially on Twitter, uh, a lot of people just focusing on how hard the job is. Oh, there's there's stress, there's job insecurity, there's a lot of paperwork, and and I I what I really encourage people to think about is the false dichotomy there, right? Uh, all that stuff, job insecurity, stress, working long hours, that's called being a young adult and launching a career, right? There's no job where you work 40 hours a week with relatively little stress and really set yourself up for success over the next 30 years that you're going to have to work before you can retire. Uh, is academia stressful? Sure. Is it a lot of work? Sure. Uh, but I don't think that's really different than, 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 than other fields. Um, I tell a story about my college roommates. Uh, four of us all lived together at Wesleyan University, uh, graduated in 1992. We are a molecular biologist, a real estate developer, a financial analyst, and a poet. Okay. Yeah. Like a legit poet. He studied with Allen Ginsberg. Like he's a very legit poet. For sure, he worked harder than any of the rest of us because he had to have a day job doing graphic design to be able to afford the lifestyle of being a poet, which doesn't pay very well. But I think he worked more hours than any of us because he that's what he wanted to do. He'd get up on Saturday morning, you go write poetry, right? I'm the same way. I get up on Saturday morning. If my kids aren't around, now my kids are mostly grown. You write, you write poetry? Yeah, I, draw, I write poetry in the lab. 
Uh, no, I don't write poetry, but I, I, I think science is the best thing in the world. It's my favorite thing to do. And so it's not like a work-life balance if I have to work at night. I'm delighted to get on and read a paper at night or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, I guess I'd say one more thing, and that is I got really great advice from a professor. I was a graduate student here at UT, a guy named Paul Krieg, and I can remember exactly where we were sitting in Patterson Labs. Uh, and he said, look, if you can think of anything else you like to do as much as this, you should definitely go do that, right? Because sure, as, you know, we're smart people. You know, if you've got a PhD in molecular biology, you can, you can go do a lot of things. But, but I actually really like doing this. Uh, so that makes it the best job in the world. So you say it's kind of a mystery to you why people are leaving academia, um, but not, I mean, all of your, have all of your mentees gone exclusively into academia? No, 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 no. I, I, and I should be clear. Um, I, I think it's, it's a mystery to me why the people who really want to be academics are afraid to give it a try. I mean, one of the beautiful things, what, you know, Biotech existed, but it was a niche thing. There were teaching options. But when I was a graduate student, there weren't many options. Now, there's so many great job opportunities, right? So I have a handful of trainees that are academics. They, I have a handful of trainees who run labs now. I have a handful of trainees who are staff scientists in academic labs. And a couple that are on the teaching track are lecturers. Um, but I also have them sort of all over the map otherwise. Uh, one's in venture capital. She funds small biotech companies in the Bay Area. Uh, another is pretty high up in Nikon instruments, the microscopes. Um, one's a stay-at-home mom. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think the difference is that people sort of talk themselves out of the academic job, even though it is what they love to do. So... What if I rephrase it in terms of not why people are leaning away from academia, but why people are more interested in other jobs, like in industry and in government? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a fair point. Uh, it, partly because of the opportunity, right? I think there are lots of opportunities there. Um, academia is harder than it used to be, for sure. Uh uh, and there's definitely a lot around uh, publishing and funding that is harder than it used to be. Um, but at the same time, I've always found those challenges really exciting, right? And I think we'll, we can talk a little bit about what those things look like. But, uh, you know, the reality of the life of the academic scientist is to just get beat down all the time, right? Um, we find fault. That's what we do. And I never took it personally. I was just like, okay, yeah, that's actually, you know, we, we're supposed to be dealing in facts and you're telling me this is wrong. And, and so, so that's the thing. But I think nowadays it, it just, uh, I wonder if it's because there's more money at stake. Uh, I don't know. But it just, a lot of the, a lot of the reviewer comments I see sound personal, <laughs> right? I think people are just pissed off generally. Uh, and that trickles down. Uh, to some of the feedback and things like that. But um, I don't know. I try to stay positive in my lab. So, um, like, staying positive in your own lab is great, but you're also talking about a greater culture of being expected to have a hard time, and that's kind of like almost almost the hazing of academia is that at a certain point in your career, you're going to have to work really hard and not get a lot of credit for what you're doing. I think that's true of every job. <laughs> right? I mean, I really do. So, yeah, I mean, there's no question. You know, I, I think what I've been really focused on is uh, we can maintain the rigor without being jerks about it. 
but we can't change the fact that the harder you work, the better you're going to do. We can't mm-hmm. change the fact that we have to be rigorous, right? We can't we can't lower our standards. We cannot, you know, keep digging at a young graduate student till he cries, uh, and that happens less now than it certainly did in the '90s. Uh, so we can be nice and kind and compassionate about it, but we still have to enforce those standards. And I don't think that's different once you get outside academia. I know a lot of people who've gone off to industry and they're like, wow, this is really hard and everybody's mean. Um, and yeah, I mean, try real estate development. <laughs> you want to get treated like a jerk, <laughs> go to real estate. Uh, so I've been lucky enough to have advisors that like I feel like respect me and are reasonable and I haven't really had many interactions that are really feel like, you know, do what I say just because I'm your superior. Um, but I know a lot I know a lot of people do have that experience of being treated like a, a lab robot. Um, and that can be difficult. And I know that you have been open about your own mental health struggles mm-hmm. and you've been here at UT for 20 years. So have you seen the university make any significant efforts towards supporting researcher, researchers with mental health resources? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm, you know, I know a lot about that stuff because of my own struggles and, and my own journey through all of that. And so I know I spend a lot of time talking with people about this, and I generally... So I don't know whether the university's done better, but they're what I think generally everyone is doing better is to say, hey, this is a thing that you do. You should go get some therapy, right? You should get on some medication or, or what it's have you. General normalization of <clears throat> General normalization, and I think it's especially important that old people like me admit that, you know, I think the, the stigma's gone now. I don't feel any embarrassment about it. I'm happy to talk about any of it. Uh, and I think a lot more people are. And so... so um, I so I can't say what the university is doing, but I can say for sure that I'm a lot more open and frank. I hear a lot more coming the other direction. I'm sorry, not I am. I get from my students a lot more open and frank discussions about I'm having these struggles, and you know I need to get some help. And I say you know, here are the things that I know about. Uh, but generally, there's just a better network there. What are some um, of the things you know you know about? Um, oh. No, no, no. I mean, just from the standpoint of what you should do. So oh, certainly, okay. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so generally, uh, uh, you know, insurance is the problem. And so there's sort of a good network. The graduate students know which therapists will take the insurance that the graduate students mm-hmm. have. So there's a pretty good network of talking to other students. Um, and a lot of times, I, you know, I, I, I certainly have my go-to students who are like, yeah, I'm willing to talk about this anytime uh, and can point them in those directions. And I recently learned just from digging through the website, partially in relationship to this uh, story I was working on, uh, the university offers free therapy to students, um, a, like a limited number of sessions, but um, it is there for anybody who wants to use it and you don't need to, they don't turn anyone away for lack of payment. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so they, that exists. It's just not very well advertised. Hmm. I did not know about it. Uh, that's useful. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So related to our first story today about um, the standards of publishing research in academia, uh, you recently wrote an editorial about the academic research landscape, uh, which is another issue that um, can drive people away from academia, of the feeling that if you don't publish, you're not succeeding. Um, and in that uh, piece of writing. You focus on the systematic issues in publication. Um, 
Oh, I actually just answered my own question. But what do you think? What is that? How is that a factor that's driving emerging researchers away from academia? Yeah, I think that's one of the key ones. I should be really clear. That was mostly written by my good friend, Andine Cleaver. She's at the UT Southwestern. We were grad students here at UT together uh, back in the day. Oh, and so cool. she I helped her write, uh, help her polish it at the end. But it's mostly her idea to, to get that going. But the, the main thing there is that one of the things that I think does push people away is uh, it is harder to publish a paper now. And if you want to publish in what are called the top tier journals. So biology has this weird thing where there's good journals and not as good journals. And physics and chemistry, it's much less like that. It's it's really mo- mostly in biology where it really matters. There's Once a, in a while, you get a drastically <clears throat> incorrect diagram of a rat published. Right, exactly. Uh, well, no, but there were, no, there are journals that are considered, if you publish there, then everyone just says, oh, it's a great paper. It's like you don't even have to read the paper. Right. And those journals, you know, the median, uh, I think, time to to publication from submission is something like 14 months at Cell, which is one of these journals. Um, and this is just catastrophic for a graduate student uh, trying to move on. And if you want to stay in academia, it's important to have those papers. If you don't, maybe it's less so, but there aren't very many venues where you can just get papers published. The key reviewers, and, and the funny thing is that, so the title of that article is, we've seen the gatekeepers and they are us, because it's all peer-reviewed. Right, and so peer reviewers are just asking for more stuff. Their job is to gatekeep. Yeah, their job is to gatekeep, but it, it's meant to be. Their job is to make sure it's correct and it's new. That it's not like, oh yeah, we've known this for forty years, right? Is it right? Were the experiments done well? Can we believe the data? But very, very frequently, it's sort of like, oh well, you knocked that gene out. Why don't you knock another gene out? Why don't you do another experiment? That isn't really going to change the conclusions. And I've certainly spend a huge amount of time, many, many months, thousands and thousands of dollars. And that's another point that really doesn't go into this is you're not changing the paper, but you're costing the taxpayers money. You're slowing down a graduate student to get to uh, where they need to be because you have to publish papers to move forward. And so I really think that this is a, uh, an issue for journal editors as much as it is for reviewers. So the reviewers are us, but the journal editors are the ones who decide you know, what to do with the reviews. And I would love to see more journal editors uh, stepping up to say, that's not going to make this paper better. That's just going to make it longer. Let's not ask the party to do this, right? Yeah, add and this I, many supplemental figures. Exactly, yeah, right? And to look at. Exactly. And so I, I think it would be, I would really love to see editors take a more active role in that. And I would love to see us being allowed to say, this is my student who's graduating. Because I've said that to editors and they say, well, that doesn't change how good, the, how, you know, whether the paper's right or not. I said, no, it has nothing to do with whether it's right. You've asked me to do a completely orthogonal experiment that doesn't change anything about this paper. So it's, we're not, it's not a quality control issue. Um, it's just this belief in reviewers and editors that more is somehow better and without taking into account people's careers. How often have you um, sent a rebuttal to reviewers being like, that's actually not necessary? Uh, well, I'm in the privileged position of sort of being late in my career and well-established. And so more often than a lot of people, if you're a young PI, if you're a new professor, uh, you probably wouldn't. And, you, you know, you, you don't want to talk back. You just do what you're asked and try to get it in. But I frequently now, not only in my own work, but now as a reviewer of papers, especially at the top journals, I've gone to adding a section in my review and said, here's what the other reviewers are going to tell you should be done to make this publishable. I don't think you should do it. And here's why. <laughs> Actually spending a lot of time explaining why additional work would be bad for this paper. Uh, and I hope it's helped a little bit. 
I wonder what, so once you review a paper, you, I think you get to see, correct me if I'm wrong, you get to see the other reviews of that paper. At, wonder, some, at most journals, yeah. I, I wonder what those other reviewers thought of those comments. Uh, I've never had anyone call me out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's anonymous, right? Not always. Okay. Not always. Well, but even if they see the other comments, usually they can respond to them. So I've never had anyone, like the editors, say, well, the reviewer thinks you're a jerk. Um, but I, I think, and I, and, I, and I do think, you know, because we are trained to find fault, if you can't find fault, then just say do more, right? So I do mm-hmm. think it's this sort of weird mindset where, where we're doing this to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can really turn off, especially younger students who aren't as experienced. You don't get used to it. I'll never forget one of the first papers we had in my lab. The, I sent it off to the, there were two other authors on it, two graduate students, and they came back with their heads hung. And I said, this is about the best reviews I've ever seen. And they're like, what? These are good reviews? I'm like, oh, these are great. Because uh, they didn't really understand how bad it can get. That sound means I got to go clean up for an EHS inspection. We'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> Long 
Welcome back. Uh, there's no science quote today because I had to do lab work. But share your science and lab quotes with me to be featured at the top of the show. Uh, and then that won't happen again, guys. Uh, while I was calculating cilial force generation, you heard Artificial Intelligence by Band of Silver. And when I had to clean up the lab for an EHS inspection, you heard Smells Like Development, which was a Nirvana biology parody created by the Maduro Lab and presented at the 73rd Annual Meeting of the Society for Developmental Biology in 2014. Thank you to John Wallingford for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Were you at that conference in 2014? I was not, sadly. <laughs> so disappointing. If you have questions, comments, confusion, connect with me via email at sciencekvrx at utexas.edu or drop me a message on Instagram at sciencekvrx. And that's also where, I'll, where I will put up the ridiculous AI images from that retracted paper. Audio assets were produced by Indigo Starbeam. You can find him wherever you stream music. And thank you for listening. And remember, if your embryonic dissection media is not physiologically isotonic, the embryo might explode. Oh, my eyes! All right, see you guys later. <laughs>